Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, we are on our last message of our People of the Spirit series. This is week 10, ladies and gentlemen. We have just concluded, uh, we are just about to conclude a 10-week sermon series. And I do hope that this series has been really helpful for you. Really, the heart behind this series is for us to learn how to walk in the way of the Spirit uh, in the time of the flesh. And really, you know, we've noticed a whole bunch of uh, fleshliness emerged uh, in this time, in this crucible moment where pressure is mounting on all sides, where the heat has been turned up. We're seeing both the good and the bad, the ugly emerge in human society. And it's uh, important for us to discover how we ought to walk uh, as ones who follow Christ, as ones who are filled with the Spirit in a cultural moment like this. Now, uh, I can't emphasize this enough and, uh, and that we are talking about the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of self-work, of self-effort, because we know that our effort, our self-effort has limitations to it. But it is the fruit of the Spirit that we are learning about today. It is what the Spirit produces in us. Those who are grafted into the kingdom, those who abide with the Spirit, in the Spirit, this is what the Spirit produces in us. And I can't emphasize this enough, that as you have heard, all these messages, this is message number 10. If you heard the last nine messages, all of that which we have talked about, you can't achieve on your own. I'm sorry to say, you're not that awesome. I'm not that awesome. We can't achieve it on our own. We need the Spirit and His power in our lives in order to live into that vision, in order to walk by the Spirit. And so, it's not that we stand idly by, but it's that we partner the Spirit through uh, practicing uh, spiritual disciplines, through making certain lifestyle changes. And that is our way of saying yes to the work of the Spirit. It is He who is transformation Himself that accomplishes these deep, this deep work in us. So with all that in our mind, our need for the Spirit, let us embark on week 10 of our sermon series people of the Spirit. This is the last concluding week, ladies and gentlemen. Let me read to you a couple of passages of Scripture to kick off, and then I'll start us off with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in together. Reading to you this morning from Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked that the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Reading to you from 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Let us begin with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you today for your holy scriptures. We thank you for this great privilege of reading your word, of learning from your word. God, we thank you for your scriptures that instruct us, that inform uh, even our thinking, that correct our wayward behaviours. God, we come today uh, reading your word and looking at scripture, not as ones who are looking to pull out stuff from your word, but God, we ask instead for your scripture to pull out stuff from within us, to pull out stuff that isn't supposed to be there, to pull out stuff that isn't in line with your kingdom, with your way, with your purpose. God, we ask even as we read of your word, that which is not an archaic piece of literature, but it's living, it's breathing, it's active, it does a deep work. God, we invite your spirit, through your scripture, 
to accomplish much in us today. We yield to you. We open up our hearts and our lives to you. Come and have your way in us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the year was 1945, and there were three energetic young men who were bursting onto the ministry scene. They were like the it thing of, uh, of ministry. And each uh, was, really in, uh, was only in their mid-twenties and experiencing a large measure of success. Two of the three had already achieved notable influence. The two were named uh, Chuck Templeton and Bron Clifford, and they were preaching dynamos of sorts. Uh, one university president, after hearing Templeton preach to a crowd of several thousand, called him the most talented and gifted young preacher in the United States. Bron Clifford was also believed to be someone who would greatly impact the church world. When Clifford preached at a chapel service in Baylor University, the president of the university was so awed by his preaching that he asked for all the church bells to cease ringing, to be turned off, so that there would be no interruption to his preaching. It was said that at the age of 25, young Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman his age. Now, uh, both, Clifford, both Templeton and Clifford started out strong, but by 1950, Templeton had left the ministry in pursuit of a career uh, as a radio and television uh, presenter and commentator, and he eventually denounced the Christian faith. He left the faith entirely. Now, Clifford's story was even sadder. By 1954, he had left his wife and his two children. Alcohol had been the vice that destroyed his life. He wandered up selling used cars in Texas. And only nine years after being the most sought-after preacher in the United States, Clifford was found dead in a sleazy motel room outside of Amarillo, Texas. Now, you may be wondering who the third evangelist was. And his name is Billy Graham, and we all know Dr. Billy Graham. While Templeton and Clifford were enjoying their success, Cliff Graham was establishing boundaries within his personal life and ministry that would ensure his longevity. We all know Dr. Billy Graham. He ended his life free of scandals. When Dr. Billy Graham was once asked how he would like to be remembered, he said this, I hope I'll be remembered as someone who was faithful, faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, father, and friend. Now, this is the one thing we keep hearing about Dr. Graham. It was the life that he lived. Not only did he live an impeccable life all throughout his life, he also finished strong. He set an example to all of us on how to not just start well, but also to finish well. And that is the goal of Christian life. It is not simply to start the race well, but to finish well as well. Or another way to put it, it's not about how strong you start, but it's about how faithful you remain. And the last one of the Spirit we're going to explore for this series is the fruit of faithfulness. And it's with intent that we uh, explore and capture this fruit last. Because what is needed for all aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, the last nine weeks, all that we talk about, is for faithfulness to be formed in us. It is for us to stay through the cross, not wavering, not buckling, but to remain steadfast, firm, and true. That is what is needed. We need faithfulness in order to live out 
all aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And what a moment to be talking about faithfulness, right? Where divorce rates are at an all-time high, where people are more transient because of hypermobility, where uh, the value of commitment is being eroded in a world full of options. It's with that as a backdrop that we talk about faithfulness this morning. For week 10 of our sermon series, People of the Spirit, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of an uncompromising faithfulness. An uncompromising faithfulness. And that is exactly the kind of faithfulness we need because we do live in an age of compromise, don't we? Where values are simply being eroded, where people are shifting to and from their convictions to, in order to be palatable, in order to be well-liked, in order to be received by others. We need a resolute kind of faithfulness in a culture, in an age of compromise. Personally, the pressure to compromise is the highest that's ever been in my lifetime. The urge to back down on Jesus' compelling vision of life in the kingdom is greater than ever, right? It is hard at times to trust in Jesus' vision for my life, for the kingdom, as supposed and over the cultures, our culture's definition of happiness. In this time where has been termed the century of self, where the values of honouring our sacred commitments or living with integrity at great personal cost are seen as passé. We who live in this culture are becoming increasingly shallow, coarse and empty. We all all have noted radical shifts in the area of sexuality, ethics and religion that have caused this once familiar landscape to uh, be virtually unrecognisable. Yet rather than shine as a beacon of light, the church has often been seen as silent, as accommodating, right? We celebrate radical individualism, right? We celebrate the right to believe as you wish instead of confronting, instead of standing up, instead of responding in love for what is truth. And the spiritual devastation, right, from this cultural change and the church's failure to respond well is unthinkable, It's unthinkable. Yet, at the same time, I'm sure many of you have felt this kind of deep conflict in your soul, right? Beneath the subterraneans of your soul, if you will. Between who we are, who you are, and who God has called us to be. So we must call our generation in this day to loyalty to Christ. We must live with devotion and conviction regardless of what what it would cost us. We must have an uncompromising faithfulness. Now, how many of you remember the time of Christian t-shirts? Christian t-shirts. You, you might not even know what I'm talking about. Now, when I first got saved, right, somehow it just computed to me that now that I'm Christian, I need to have Christian clothes. I need to have a Christian wardrobe. Now, Christian t-shirts were all the rage in the 90s and it spilled over to the early 2000s. I and uh, Exo, we used to wear Christian t-shirts all the time and we would buy them at uh, Techman. Now, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, these are Christian t-shirts. I have a few examples for you. One, this one, Jesus died for my space in heaven. And another one, maybe a bit more relevant, Faith Book. And uh, this is my favorite one. This is a rift off of Abercrombie and Fitch. It goes, a breadcrumb and fish. Now, you may laugh at these now, right, and think that they are super cheesy, but back then, they were all the rage. And I thought that these t-shirts were super cool, and it was my way of showing the world that I was a Christian. I was different. Now, uh, when I became Christian, it wasn't just my wardrobe that was impacted, right? I 
definitely stocked my wardrobe full of these t-shirts. But there were other aspects of my life that were impacted uh, by my faith as well. It looked like uh, not watching certain movies. You know what I'm talking about. Not playing certain games. Uh, not reading certain books. Or even listening to what uh, we call uh, secular music. Now the reason why I reference a lot of old rock and, uh, and songs from the early 2000s is because there's an entire time period in my life where I, have li where I listened to virtually no secular songs. And so there's an entire time period, maybe about five to six years, where I'm completely unfamiliar with those songs because all I did was listen to worship Christian music and maybe the occasional switch foot and casting crowns because they were kind of in the middle and they were also kind of okay. Now, of course, today many people in my generation laugh and scoff and think of these rules and uh, restrictions as absurd, as outdated, as passé, as legalistic. And many who have grown up like me, the same way that, that I did, uh, have since uh, thrown off restraint and made up for lost time. But I've been thinking recently, what if the previous generation was onto something? What if they were more wise than we are and more aware of forces and powers at play that were beyond what the eye could see? What if in our attempt to throw off the legalism of the old, we have, in a way, created an even deeper kind of bondage, a need to be liked, included, and up-to-date, guys under what we term as relevance? What if our generation, in our bid for relevance, have increasingly grown to be lovers of the world? What if we don't stand out anymore? A question I've asked myself recently is, what aspects of my life have I willingly given up or currently uh, given up or embraced in my love for God and His kingdom? What convictions do I have in my life? What are some things that I have on purpose withheld myself from doing, from participating in? In the past, I used to be able to point to my wardrobe. I used to be able to point to my choice of music or the music that I don't listen to. I used to be able to point to movies that I don't watch. But these days, if I can be honest, that list is getting uh, increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller. And I fear that in all our emphasis of being relevant as a church, we have lost our prophetic voice. We have become lovers of the world. And I'm not talking about the church conceding on any particular kind of issue, but the general spirit of the age, that spirit that, that says, I want to be like, I don't want to be rejected. I want to be well-loved by all. That is the spirit that many of us, myself included, have given a foothold room in my life. And we need an uncompromising faithfulness this day. Rather than speaking truth to power, many of us have been seduced by it. But by contrast, rather than accepting prevailing viewpoints, heroes of the faith, men who made a difference all throughout history, have pointed to an alternative authority to govern their lives, the king and his kingdom. We need that kind of faithfulness. Now in his first letter, the Apostle John lays out this challenge and as well as expresses the danger of worldliness, of loving the world. He says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. One writer calls it a call to be on guard against all worldliness. Now, before you get tripped up by the word world, this isn't reference to the world we live in or what we know as the cosmos, or it doesn't refer to creation. 
The best definition of the world that I can think of comes from John Mark Comer, where he says that the world is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized into a culture that is organized around rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Now, this is what many writers of the New Testament have called us to be on guard against. It is dangerous. Maybe like you, like me, started out your faith with an incredibly tender conscience, right? You were careful. You were thoughtful. You didn't want to grieve God's heart, His spirit, right? You know, you, you were careful in the things you did. You were careful in what you listened to. You were careful. You, you thought about everything with sincere care before you participated in it because you didn't want to grieve God's heart and, and did and do things out of his way. And perhaps over time, you have grown affectionate towards the world. You become complacent and apathetic and begin to be loose on convictions and tolerate moderate, moderate socially acceptable doses of worldliness. And what started off as harmless has over time led to a life that professes Christ in name but denies him by lifestyle. Maybe you've been liberal with what you watch and have seen yourself spiral into bouts of lust and indulgence. Maybe you've been careless with the way you've been speaking and over time have become unwholesome, crass, vulgar, and condemning your speech. Maybe you've gotten good at this Christian thing, good at life, or you've become wiser, more skilled, and more mature, and you think you've got a pretty good handle on things. Previously, you depended on God a whole lot, but these days, not so much, and you're filled with pride at how adept and able you are. Whatever have you, we need to guard against all manners of worldliness, to not tolerate, or in the words of Jesus, to give the devil a foothold. Because most don't fall into sin on accident or in an instant. Sin, falling to sin, indulging sin, often starts with those little compromises, those little moments of tolerance for things outside of God's ways, kingdom, and it slowly morphs and forms our desires, our loves and our longings until it's out of the way of Jesus. And what's tragic today is that it is not just the world that compromises, the church compromises as well. From pastors falling morally, scandals abounding to whole denominations, shifting their theological positions, their stances, their core convictions in order to be palatable, to culture. We are living in what can be described as perilous times. The truth is our reality today isn't so far from what is described in Matthew chapter 24, isn't it? It says this, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Brandon Manning says this, that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now at this point, you would have realized that this is not your atypical message on faith, right? You're thinking, man, Andre's going to encourage us in faith. He's going to tell us to hope, to believe in trying times. And that is valid and that is true. And I want you to have a resolute hope in this time. But today I'm going to approach faith uh, from a different angle, if you will. Because the New Testament word for faithfulness translates to having confidence, being trustworthy, fidelity, and loyalty. Now notice these choices of words. 
They are embodied characteristic traits and not just mindsets that we adopt. And we need both, don't we? We need faith, that which is hope, that which believes. And we need faithfulness. We need to have these embodied characteristic traits, loyalty, fidelity, confidence, trustworthiness. We need that. And think about the story of Peter stepping out of the boat, right? He stepped out in faith. But after a couple of steps, he began to doubt and he sank. And what does that say to us? It says that we need faith. We need that which is at times really spontaneous and explosive even. We need to believe and hope in God. But we also need the faithfulness to stick it out, to keep going, to be consistent, trustworthy, and loyal. In the Old Testament, the people of God lived as exiles. In the New Testament, the people of God lived under Caesar. In our own time, we need to ask ourselves, under whose authority we are living under? Who holds the formative power in our lives? If we really believe that Jesus is Lord of all, of our lives, in a culture like ours, one that is filled with compromise, that lordship will be tested. We need to see ourselves as Christians, as ones who are living in this world, as a kind of minority culture, fighting to maintain faithfulness to God in a culture that opposes God and is seeking to assimilate us into its ways. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. We are displaced in a world that is not ours. We are in the world, but not of it. Now, when I look for biblical wisdom to handle these challenges that are described, I think of the book of Daniel and the courage and faithfulness he showed in his time of exile. In Daniel's day, Hebrew boys as young as 13 years were taken away from their families and community. Now, theologically and diplomatically speaking, their capture and exile meant that their God had been conquered, had been defeated. And if you were removed from your God's context, it meant that your God was defeated. Now, Daniel and others were taken away and put in a position of incredible coercion, right? They were seeking to assimilate these boys into uh, their host culture, right? They were stewards in the king's household. They were educated in the wisdom, in the literature of Babylon. They were given influence. Yet, for Daniel, his heart remained loyal to an alternative authority. His allegiance was not shaken. It was not to Babylon, but it was to Yahweh, his God. Now, Daniel and his friends were given moments of testing and as well as moments of favor, right? Who can forget their efforts of eating a different diet or their refusal to bow down before the golden image? Many immediately think of Daniel's convictions to pray and resulting in him uh, being sentenced to the lion's den. But the scene, personally, for me, that stands out most was his commitment to speak truth and his unwavering integrity loyalty and faithfulness in the face of personal opportunity and advancement. Now, in the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel, there's an account of King uh, Belshazzar hosting a party and profaning the holy instruments of God. A hand appears on the wall and the king is absolutely terrified. And he calls on Daniel and says, Daniel, I need you to come and interpret this writing, right? Now think about yourself uh, in Daniel's position. Now this was a foreign pagan king. You were living in his kingdom and he was called to, uh, to interpret his writing. Think about the temptation for Daniel to soften the message, right? To make it a bit more palatable, to not talk about uh, judgment, right? But to just weave it into a kind, a nice saying. Think about the temptation that Daniel must have faced, the fear that, um, must, that, that probably trembled in his heart. 
But Daniel knows that time that he was living under the authority of another kingdom. Though he was physically present in this kingdom, in fact, his allegiance, his heart, where he really was, was in the, instead under the authority of another king. Now it says this in, in uh, Daniel chapter 5 of uh, Belshazzar's in, interaction with Daniel. It says this, that Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of God is in you, and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters you brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Here we see that Daniel lived with incredible conviction. He was offered power, prestige, and wealth that he declined while still speaking the truth to power. He knows from whom his wisdom is derived and has no allegiance, no desire, no affection for worldly accolades. Now in another chapter, Daniel chapter 9, we read of a remarkable account of an angel visiting Daniel to inform him of the effectiveness of his prayers. It says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, a lot of people, when they read this text, they draw a lot of focus on the image of the angel, right? It was an extraordinary thing. An angel came to him in his time of prayer. But what really uh, struck me about this passage was the time that it records that Daniel was praying. Now, at this point, Daniel had been in Babylon for some 70 years. Yet we find that he was ordering his time, his prayer times around the evening sacrifice. At this point, he had not seen a sacrifice in the temple for decades, for some 70 years. The temple had, in fact, already been destroyed. Yet, his internal reality was not defined by the Babylonian calendar. It was defined by the rhythms to which God had already put in his life and that fueled his life while he was living in Jerusalem. Now, this is a powerful reminder to, to us that our hearts are called to remember and respond to the Jerusalem that is above instead of the Babylon that is below. As the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle Peter urges us in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And we can learn a lot from Daniel's example of maintaining and manifesting faithfulness whilst being immersed in a radically dissimilar host culture. To be in the world, but to be not of it. Now, this is how Daniel exhibited faithfulness 
whilst being in that host culture. First off, he exhibited faithfulness as trustworthiness. It says this in Daniel chapter 6, that the other administrators and high officers were searching for some kind of fault, right? They were trying to pin some kind of blame, some kind of fault, some kind of dysfunction on Daniel, right? In the way he was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn him. And this was what was said of Daniel, that he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Because this is what faithfulness is, is living out the face to which profess. It is to have integrity, right? What we profess, what we say matches how we live in word, in deed, in thought. We see this displayed in moments in Daniel's life where he withheld himself from advancement and opportunity just so his character and devotion to God can be kept intact. And the issue with much of modern day Christianity is that it follows the winner's script, doesn't it, right? It says, follow Jesus and you'll be blessed. Nothing will go wrong, right? Just be faithful. Everything will come to you. Wealth and health will, will certainly come. But the truth is, a faithful life doesn't always necessarily translate to a successful life where the world is concerned. Look at the saints in the New Testament, right? They were all faithful par excellence, but many of them died horrific deaths. A faithful life doesn't always translate to a successful life where the world is concerned, right? It's possible to have a life that doesn't appear fruitful to the world, but is faithful to God. This is the foolishness of the cross. The cross looks like failure, but it is the greatest act of faithfulness that has led to incalculable fruitfulness. And so the question for us today is, are we trustworthy? Will we preserve our character? Will we stay true to cause to God's way in the face of maybe more success, maybe uh, more advancement, maybe more opportunities, will we still choose to remain faithful, trustworthy, steadfast in God's way in the face of more? Because God is more concerned about your long-term character than your short-term happiness. And He wants to build in us such a resolution, such firmness and steadfastness in character that we may be able to withstand uh, even the delusion of riches, the allure of influence. Now, we all know that we can trust God wholeheartedly. But the question we ought to ask ourselves today is, can God trust us? Can God trust us when it really counts? The other way that Daniel manifests uh, faithfulness in the midst of host culture is this, it's fidelity in the midst of options. Here's the truth. Faith and faithfulness is not just an adherence to a set of theological ideas or principles. It is fundamentally a relational commitment to a person. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, that Christianity has no meaning devoid of Christ. The noble principles of Christianity remain abstract until they are personified in a person called Christ. Christ becomes the center or the pivotal point around which everything in the Christian faith revolves. And that is what, what, what he's essentially saying is that faith, Christianity, it revolves around the person of Christ. It's not just abstract concepts or rules that you follow and adhere to. It is fundamentally a relationship. Now, one of the central metaphors of God's relationship with His people is that of bride and bridegroom. God is not a harsh judge, but He is a tender lover. God is a relational God. Therefore, faith is relational. And so faithfulness is a kind of relational fidelity. 
In Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 20, it says this, that I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Notice the kind of wedding, marriage, bride and bridegroom kind of language. Now, many of us will be familiar with the book of Hosea, and Hosea uh, is a character in the Bible. His marriage to Gomer, a promiscuous woman of ill repute, who ends up committing adultery, is often compared and likened to God and his relationship with Israel. Sam Albury says this, that in the Old Testament, God had used a human marriage to show what his people were like. He told one of his prophets, Hosea, to go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea's wife was adulterous, she cheated on her husband, and God is saying that his people were and are spiritually adulterous. That's what sin is. It is loving something more than God. It's cheating on God. Spiritually speaking, the church is unfaithful. Yet Jesus is the husband of the church. And as Hosea was sent to go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, Jesus still loves us, despite what we are like. And as Hosea had to pay a price, to free his wife to live with him again, a high price. So Jesus paid his own life to free us, to live with him forever, the higher price. That's how much he loves his church. All we bring to this relationship is our need and our guilt, but he brings freedom, a dress worth wearing, and a perfect future with him forever. And the challenge that God has with us all throughout human history is that we don't reciprocate the intensity of God's love for us we are, in many ways, an unfaithful bride, and God is a wounded lover. In many ways, this is what God feels when we love the world. He feels a kind of desertion and abandonment because a love for the world is ultimately a kind of spiritual adultery. It's cheating on God. And it's ne isn't necessarily turning from God to another idol where idolatry was clear-cut in the Old Testament, right? It's turning away from one God and embracing another. Today, we practice idolatry by worshipping God amongst many other gods. And we all know that we have, in some ways, allowed for influences into our heart, into our lives, to pull our affections away from He who deserves it all. James chapter 4 has a startling rebuke to the people of God. It says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And just like marital faithfulness isn't just about the vow that was professed on a wedding day, but the willingness to live up to that vow consistently as a people of God, our faith isn't so much built on one moment, one prayer, but it is to translate into a life of faithfulness where we endeavor to, to live out that, that profession that Jesus is Lord every day of our lives, to push away the delusion of the world, its allure, its influence, to cast aside things that pull our affections away from God and to endeavor to love Him wholeheartedly, to say no to spiritual adultery and be fully committed and faithful to our bridegroom king. The last way that Daniel exhibited faithfulness was this, it was loyalty under pressure. Loyalty under pressure. Now the word loyalty seems almost dated except in relation to your Sephora and Boost gift cards, 
right? But perhaps we need to capture this idea of loyalty and allegiance to the king, much like we need to recapture this idea of being citizens of God's kingdom. We need to rediscover loyalty and allegiance. Now, this is not a great story to illustrate the point. Now, I really love my job. As a pastor, I love what I get to do, how I get to encourage, and how I get to contribute to human flourishing. But one of the little inconveniences about being a pastor, my job is um, often, you know, when I tell people uh, what I do for a living, uh, it either uh, brings about questions, uh, so what do you actually do, or the conversation comes to a complete and utter stop. And this happens often when I'm on grab cars, you know, uh, a person will ask, uh, what do you do for a living? And I'll say I'm a pastor, and then instantly the conversation will stop, right? And I don't know why, maybe people are just uncomfortable with pastors. And I've learned over time in order to keep the conversation going, perhaps I should say I, uh, you know, have another job. And so I've told people that I'm in charity work, I'm in non-profit, I'm in an NGO. I've told people that I'm in sales uh, as well. Uh, because, you know, it's kind of like sales, <laughs> what I'm doing now. I'm just kidding. But, you know, it's, it's definitely not a great story to illustrate the point, right? But the, the question I want to ask is that, you know, deep down in uncomfortable situations, right, in situations that are unpleasant, right, that, that perhaps will cost us influence or likability, are we loyal to the king? Are we loyal to the king? When it can cost you your reputation, are you loyal to the king? When it comes at personal cost, maybe even persecution, are you loyal to the king? Daniel, even though it meant that it, he would be killed, executed, was resolute in his loyalty to the king. He chose to not bow down such that he may stand firm in his allegiance and loyalty to the king of kings. Because it's easy for us to be loyal when things are easy. But when rubber meets the road, when push comes to shove, are we loyal to the name of Christ and to the cause of Christ. Now, coming to a close real, real soon, one of my favorite movies of all time, and this is increasingly becoming uh, a favorite of mine, is the movie Silence. Now, I watched the movie Silence with a few guys from our church, and uh, it was a really interesting experience. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, but we uh, entered the, the movie uh, talking a whole lot, but we left the movie in utter silence. I remember after we watched the movie, we went all the way down to the basement of the mall that we were in, in complete silence because we were so awestruck, not just by the cinematography, but by the message uh, in the movie. Now, Silence uh, was uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, and this was him returning uh, back to his Catholic roots by turning a phenomenal book into an extraordinary film. Now, this uh, film basically tells the story of two uh, priests who traveled to Japan in search of their mentor, who they heard had turned away from the Christian faith, had apostatized, and, uh, and they, they went there with deep conviction to reclaim, to recover their mentor. And it's a film, this film really shows the nature and pain of resistance to the gospel and the call to faithfulness. It's absolutely beautiful film. Now, there's this scene uh, in the movie where followers of Jesus uh, won't deny him, right, in, in that, that climate of persecution. And they were basically these followers crucified uh, on a beach uh, next to the sea, and they were left out there for days to be exposed to the elements. And over the course of a few days, uh, they would eventually either succumb to the elements or be drowned by the rising tides. Now, those who were opposing Christians uh, in the movie in that day, it is, it, they said this, you know, if you don't want that to be your faith, your fate, it is easy, right? They will put an image of Christ, right? A small little image of Christ, they put it on the ground. And all you had to do to 
to escape persecution was step on the face of Jesus, that image, and you would be uh, uh, set free. And in the movie, you know, one of the scenes uh, depicted this great tension among the followers of Jesus, whether to step on the face of Jesus and escape persecution or remain faithful to him. Now, um, you can look up uh, this uh, image and, and, and ancient artifact online, and you can see the picture of the one that I put up, that the image of Jesus, his face, has been worn out because many in that day would choose to deny him and step on him. And I think in some sense, we are in a similar moment right now, aren't we? Where God is asking whether we would deny him or whether we would choose to be faithful and loyal to him. I wonder if an image of Jesus is placed before us today, whether we will step on him and deny him, right? Where our culture perhaps tells us to give up our core ethical convictions, will we step on the face of Jesus? Perhaps our culture will say to us, give up your belief of Jesus' exclusive claims, will we step on the face of Jesus? And I wonder if the image were put down before you and I today, will we step on the face of Jesus? Would that face of Jesus be worn out again? 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Luke chapter 18 talks about the Messiah coming back. And this is what he looks for. It says this, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that is what God is looking for in all of our lives, in our hearts, in our church. He's looking for faith in this age, in this culture of compromise. Because faithfulness to God today manifests itself as trustworthiness, as loyalty under pressure, as fidelity in the midst of many, many options. And so I want to call you, church, to loyalty where it comes. I want to call you, church, to resolve to be trustworthy in character. I want to call you, church, to be faithful to God, to cease spiritual adultery, put an end to sin in your life and indulgence, and to devote ourselves wholly to God and His kingdom. So maybe in, in all of this, right, you feel really overwhelmed, right? You are confronted with the depravity of the soul, you're confronted with where you're lacking, you're confronted with how unfaithful you've perhaps been in this time. And that is the whole point, is for us to be confronted with the weakness of our soul, with the fragility of our resolve, and to come back to a place of utter holy dependency. We need God. It is the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of self-effort. Because, hear me in saying this, our faithfulness is rooted in God's faithfulness toward us. It's not rooted in sheer human willpower. We are fickle and our resolve fragile and we are incapable of faithfulness apart from God's faithfulness toward us. It says this in God's Word that let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. It says this in God's word, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. And so we read this, right? That it is God's nature to be faithful. His heart is to be faithful. Even when we are faithless, even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. That our relationship to Him is not contingent on our ability to be faithful, but is entirely dependent on He who is consistently and enduringly faithful. And we have hope that we can have faith and faithfulness in trying times because God is faithful. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation has 
has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And we read in scriptures, right, of the two, Peter and Judas, who both denied Christ in their own way, who both failed the test of faith. And one ended tragically, but the other was restored and became an apostle of grace. And in our failings and our weakness, there's always a possibility. There's always a way made for redemption and restoration. God is faithful toward us and never gives up on us. We can be absolutely certain of that. And because God is with us, He is faithful, we have hope that we can live faithful lives as well. Closing off with this final verse, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, it says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now today, perhaps you are confronted in all sorts of ways of how we've been unfaithful toward God. But let us also realize that God's faithfulness towards us is immovable, it's unshakable. It is who He is. And us today, as, even as we close off shortly, to confess our sins where we have felt, invite God's grace to meet us, even as we profess our weakness and recommit our ways to God once again. And this morning, we're going to close off a bit differently. We're going to have an instrumental piece uh, that will be playing uh, after I'm done with this time. But uh, you know, what I really would like for all of us to do is to uh, you know, even enter into a place of prayerful consideration and repentance. There'll be no words, there'll be no lyrics, and this is a time that I want for all of us to set aside as a time where we recognize where we have felt, where we are perhaps depraved in our hearts, and invite God's grace to meet us in our weakness. The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so today, even as we are confronted with the fragility of our resolve, with how we've indulged in wrong unkingdom things. Let us in humility repent and ask for God's grace to meet us. Let me pray for you even as we close off this time. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are true, that you will never leave us, that you never forsake us. Even when we mess up, even when we go astray, God, you are faithful and true. And God, we ask indeed today for your grace, for your spirit to meet us today. God, we yearn and we desire to be faithful witnesses of your kingdom in this age of compromise. God, we ask for your help, your grace to meet us. God, we know that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. So God, we invite your spirit to help us to remain faithful when all the circumstances and when all the things of life seek to pull us in a different direction. God, we ask that you will keep us faithful, steady, true to cause, loyal to your kingdom. We ask for your help this day. In your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.